Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two year contracts, they said, What the f are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Children of the Night, North Carolina is home to a story that if you're a fan of particularly old-timey country music, you may have heard the Kingston Trio song, Tom Dooley. The song's lyrics are not complicated, but tells a brief story of Tom Dooley killing a beautiful woman on the mountain with a knife, and then alludes to a man named Grayson capturing Tom Dooley, which leads on to a hanging from a white oak tree. Legend goes that in 1866, a dashing Confederate veteran returned from the American Civil War by the name of Tom Dooley, that's spelled D-U-L-A, meets beautiful Laura Foster, who was being courted by a schoolteacher named Bob Grayson. A personal interjection, when I was a freshman and sophomore in high school, the school's principal was a fellow named Bob Grayson, likely no relation. Continuing on, Laura falls in love with Tom, but meanwhile, another woman named Anne Melton falls for him as well. Anne is married, uh-oh, wealthy, beautiful, and most of all, jealous. After finding out that Tom is in love with Laura, not her, she stabs Laura to death in a rage of jealousy. Tom is to blame, and he flees to Tennessee. Bob Grayson forms up a posse and extradites him back to North Carolina, where he stands trial. Noble Tom Dooley, in some sort of sense of duty, doesn't push the blame of the murder on Anne, but takes the hit and is executed. The legend continues that Laura progressively slips into madness, consumed by guilt, until her death. Jealousy, murder, an innocent man executed, and a woman tormented by her own guilt. What more could Tales to Terrify ask for, out of a story? Well, I've included in the show notes a link to a and I'm doing air quotes here, true telling of the story of Tom Dooley. Both the legend and the, again, air quotes, true story seem to have lots of places around North Carolina and the Internet, but I can't quite vouch for any of them. But the second story is worth a read. It's far more torrid and includes the final words of Tom Dooley being, You have such a nice clean rope, I had to have washed my neck. And now, let's get on to our story for the night. We've got one longer story for the night. It comes from Mark Rigney. Mark Rigney is a writer and a stay-at-home father living and working in Evansville, Indiana. He has two sons, currently ages 8 and 12, respectively, and he is happily married to a wonderful woman with whom he shares the house, the boys, and far more meals than any married couple has a right to expect. Most writers learn to specialize, and thus we have journalists, novelists, short story writers, nonfiction writers, screenwriters, and playwrights. Mark apparently missed the class suggesting these helpful divisions, and so rather alarmingly, he now embraces his own proclivity to work in whatever genre, style, or medium suggests itself. Let the idea dictate the form, that's his motto, which means he isn't very good at what the business world has come to call branding. Instead, Mark continues to try his hand at everything from meta 
theatrical craziness to poetry, blogs, and epistolary rumination. Back in the exciting halcyon days when he held real jobs, Mark worked as a zookeeper, a sound recordist, and as a technical director for a college theater. For several years, he made his living as a retail trainer for Borders Books and Music, where he assisted with store openings across the country, reasoning that while endless chain stores may be undesirable, no nation can ever have too many bookshops. In his spare time, he has been known to hike, teach college-level English and creative writing classes, and play with his children. And now, Mark Rigney's The Demon Laplace. Alan didn't mean to speak. But as the display started to tumble, as 10,000 supermarket candies cascaded over themselves in their holiday hurry to reach the floor, Reflex took over. He shouted, Look out! to the woman just rounding the corner, and in doing so, his fate was sealed. Of course, the whole display went down. Clumsy, so edgy and skittish. He'd made it through fruits and vegetables, he'd gotten past the dairy case, and he already had the 12-pack of precious long necks in his cart. No one had even so much as nodded hello. Why hadn't he simply come around the corner at a normal pace? If he had, he never would have clipped the display. Everything would have been fine. Instead, there he stood, his shoes and half the cart buried under a landscape of crinkly packaged candy canes and peppermint kisses. Caught. He swallowed and dared to look at the woman, this suddenly all-important stranger. She'd landed on the floor in a sitting sprawl, and Alan thanked to God he didn't often believe in that she wasn't old or horrifyingly ugly. No, in fact, she topped the scales of beautiful. Although at present her eyes were popped wide, her mouth gasped muted little cries of, That was scary, but I seemed to be fine, oh my. She had a button nose and auburn hair, water falling down a pale swan's neck. Her skin was Irish alabaster, her candid, her candid eyes cat glass green. The supermarket's overhead speakers ignored all the commotion with steadfast holiday cheer. Baby, it's cold outside, seeped through the air. Acutely conscious of his pounding pulse and a developing sweat, Alan cursed Michael Wish to the lowest pits of hell and reached out a hand to help the woman up. She thanked him, laughed, brushed herself off, and they stood together in the rumble of packaging, giggling and introducing themselves until, not seven months later, just as he'd known would happen, she said... I, Margaret DeKesney Malloy, do take thee, Alan Hodge, to be my lawfully wedded husband. The day was gorgeous, and even the weathered little minister seemed possessed by some vast ethereal radiance. Margaret's eyes were moist as she spoke, and her hands lightly pressed into Alan's, trembling like fluttery diaphanous wings. She said later she'd never been so happy in her life. Alan wanted very much to feel the same way but he could not help casting back to how their blissful courtship had spilled itself out of some eager rolled-up carpet, exactly as if it had all been preordained. Which, perhaps, it was. Six months before meeting Margaret, Alan had transferred to the Colony Square Postal Station, where he met a new cadre of co-workers and carriers, along with the man who sorted next to him every morning, Michael Wish. Michael, Taller than Pudgy Allen, bearded and lanky and rope-armed, his reddish ponytail braided and hanging halfway down his back. He looked distant and drugged one instant, keen-eyed and hunted the next. In those rare moments when he wasn't sorting the mail, he dug a pair of oversized dice from his pocket and rolled them through his fingers, occasionally letting them spill onto any handy surface, then grumbling and growling at the results. Michael hardly spoke until their third day, but then... As if some great new idea had just struck him, he turned to Alan and extended his hand. His face shone like a convert's newly saved. Michael Wish, he said, as they shook, it's time we met. Having introduced himself, Michael spent the next half hour haranguing Alan with various pet peeves, political rants, and a massive info dump of personal history. When he asked if Alan was offended by anything he'd said, Alan shrugged and said, not really. I pretty much just go with things, you know. Michael raised an eyebrow and abruptly leaned closer, like a snake targeting a mouse. My name, he said. He doesn't really wish. His hands were busy all the while sorting through the day's mail. The sound of paper formed a constant musical accompaniment, all rustlings and shufflings. Properly, he went on. My name would be Vishnisky, 
but my dad changed it when we came over. He was a doctor, pediatrics and stuff, and he said he couldn't afford to chase away clients with a name the good people of Pittsburgh couldn't pronounce. So, wish. Simple, direct, positive image for mommies with sick kids. Alan ventured to say the change sounded like a good choice, and this drew a one-note laugh from Michael. Know what I do, Summers? He said, in the evenings after work, I work the fairgrounds. Carney stuff, amateur fortune-telling, age, height, weight, which actually I'm no good at. Predictions, that's more my line. But nothing too heavy, you know. I tell them just enough to make sure they bring their friends the next night. And here Michael grinned broadly, as if this were the finest idea in the world. On a good day, I can play a man like a keyboard. Both Alan and Michael had their raggedy canvas mailbags set atop the coffee-stained counter. It was fall, and they wore their cool-weather uniforms. Steel blue pants with vertical stripe down the outside seam, and a long-sleeve, powder-blue postal service button-down. The surrounding building smelled faintly of mildew and ink, and the overhead fluorescence hummed and rattled like peaceful glowing bugs. Michael shot a challenging glance to Alan. Know how I do it? I'll tell ya. Laplace. Pierre-Simon Laplace. Alan reached for the receding treasures of his high school science and came up blank. Almost. You mean like Newton? Causal determinism. One thing proceeding from the next ad infinitum. It's what makes me such a fine fortune teller and such a damn handsome man. Okay, I am out of here. Before Alan could say, as would have been natural with anyone else, Okay, see ya. Michael halted, his bag slung over his shoulder, and a loaded mail crate gripped to his chest. You will see me, he said, his gaze in amber-eyed spotlight, tomorrow at 7.01 a.m. precisely. Of course, Alan did his best to sabotage Michael's prediction, but he couldn't afford to be too tardy, as he'd already been written up by his new super snake-eyed Keisha Galwart on day one for all of being 14 minutes late. But showing up early didn't work. Traffic conspired against him, forced him to take the farthest parking spot in the employee's lot, and by the time he actually had himself out of his Civic and headed for the door, it was 6.55. Would it be better, then, to wait in his car and listen to the morning show until well past 7.01? As he hesitated, one hand clutching his keys, Keisha strolled out from behind the parked Postal Service Jeep and offered a ballooning smile. "'Hey, Alan!' she said. You and me hit it off on the wrong foot, but I can see you're a decent guy. Come on in, I got something for you. He followed, of course. What else could a decent guy do? Keisha led him up to her office and plucked a small gift bag, the color of a plastic flamingo, off the top of her very messy desk. She handed it to Alan, her cornrowed hair jangling with shells. We haven't had a new face here for I don't know how long. I figure a little welcome present would be the least we could do. Alan reached into the bag and groped through the crinkling pink tissue. Behind him, he felt more than saw a gaggle of co-workers gathering. His fingers brushed something metallic, and he triumphantly withdrew a key ring, with both a compass and a pepper spray canister attached. "'Your survival kit,' Keish announced. "'Glad to have you with us.' By the time Alan finished shaking hands with everyone, the overhead clock read 701, and there stood Michael Wish. "'Morning,' he said. "'Surprised?' They settled into work with the day's incoming mail crates at their feet. Street by street, each item got sorted with the particular carrier's route in mind, its unique flow and sequence. Generally, Alan found the work calming, but on this day, one envelope after another threatened to drift off course. Don't be frightened, Michael said, his eyes on his work. You're a fortune teller, too. Oh, yeah, sure I am. Everyone at the post office is. All the carriers, anyway. Alan shot Michael a derisive look and nearly dropped the latest Land's End catalog into the spot for number 112 South Grace instead of its proper home at number 122 South Larkin. I'm serious, Michael said. He picked up an envelope, sealed, a collection notice addressed to Ed Crawley, number 42 South Vernon. Its noisy plastic address window winked in the light. The mail, continued Michael, his voice dangerously patient, is a crystal ball. Ed Crawley. He doesn't know this is coming, or what it says. But the person who sealed the envelope, they knew. And they've known for days, maybe longer. Now we know, too. Therefore, 
we have glimpsed a sliver of Ed's future. The doubtful expression Alan assumed was calculated to buy him time. It was a trick he'd learned from watching his under-talented physics teacher in high school, a lonely cast-off of a man who'd resorted to reside brown furrowing whenever asked a question, and the example had served Alan well ever since. Michael? Alan said slowly. That's a very interesting idea. Not really. It's just a fact. And facts are dull, frankly. But actions... Now that's a puzzle worth tackling. Actions make people who they are. Feeling unjustly accused, Alan tried to focus on sorting. But Michael refused to let the moment rest. Hey, want to know what you're going to have for lunch today? Alan had packed his own, as he always did, and it was waiting in his car stored in a six-quart igloo ice chest bearing a Lollapalooza bumper sticker, its contents invisible to Michael. I already know what I'm having, he said, and it'll be good, too. You won't finish the banana, said Michael. Bottom third's gone black. I think I liked you better when you didn't speak. Ah, come on now, don't be mad. I can turn it off if you like. Turn off what? With great exaggeration, Michael tapped his forehead with the waterworks bill. You know... My magic brain. The bit that looks forward. It's not like I really know everything. I mean, that'd be nuts, right? I'd probably kill myself. But when I focus in, really look at a person, just about anything, a cup of water, a bird, a doorway, everything from before kind of lines up, and I can see what's next. But hey, you go enjoy your lunch. Who knows? I have made a mistake here or there. But he hadn't. Come noontime, the lower part of Alan's banana, with no particular evidence on its ripe yellow peel, revealed itself to be a soggy, sticky, black mess inside. And Alan sat in his mail truck and felt his pulse ticking in his head. His adult co-worker was for real. What made Michael's gift all the more galling was that he refused to speak about it any further. And days passed, then weeks, with nothing more substantive than remarks about the next day's weather and a prediction or two invariably wrong, about the next night's football game. Alan told himself to relax, but it was too late. Kinetic pleasures like walking his route, working out with his weights, or slurping too much beer were replaced by regretful reimaginings of his earlier life, revised now to include Michael, and centering on a time when he dropped out of Ivy Tech and applied to be a firefighter. He'd passed the physical exams with no problem, and then came the mandatory psychiatric evaluation. He'd failed. And, as per fire department policy, he was never informed as to the reasons. He pried, of course, but he was met with an iron wall of tolerant smiles, each one affixed like paint to the faces of men who'd long since passed those tests and knew their secrets. But, thought Alan, what if Michael had been around to consult? The whole episode could have been solved, or at least avoided. He wouldn't have had to pace through life carrying the awful knowledge that he'd been deemed by strangers to be grossly inadequate. Alan also pasted Michael into his present. He'd never been lucky with girls, nor, now that he was grown, with women. True, Moira had gone so far as to move in, but was gone again in a week, making vague references to how Alan needed a rudder more than a girlfriend. Kristen had insisted on her serious intentions, but would never reveal where she lived. And as for Lana, a tempestuous study in mood swings, it was Alan who'd brought the hammer down. Raised voices and strain weren't what Alan was after, no matter what the bedroom perks. And so, at 27, he'd begun to fret about bachelorhood over the long haul, a life where there'd be no one to watch out for him on the inevitable slide toward death. He recognized the trap for what it was, that he might, like the popular clique in high school, partner up out of need rather than love, from the social pressure of being expected to have a mate. So Alan pumped his weights to the sonic thump of the Dave Matthews band, and he ambled along his route and he microwaved his dinners and generally did his best to avoid a growing sense of isolated panic. He realized his fears were essentially adolescent, which of course only made things worse. Good women, the marrying kind, didn't fall for panicky adolescence. He broke down on the Tuesday just before Halloween, just as Michael, who always finished sorting first, was making for the door. Hey, hold up, said Alan. His throat so tight it all but strangled his voice. I need to ask you something. Michael swung back toward the sorting counter, looking almost hungry, his eyes like headlights, high beams surrounded by skin. Alan, my man, something got your goat? 
Yeah, listen, it's about... Alan, whoa, with the big stuff, it's usually better not to know. Okay, but what I want to say is, and I can't always be precise, you know? It doesn't always come out nice and clear like you're going to cut your thumb on a potato peeler, yeah? Michael, I'm not playing around. Am I ever going to get married? Eyes closed, mouth slightly open as if he just tasted the most wonderful exotic dish. Michael sighed luxuriously. Oh, yeah, you'll be getting married. Really? Alan, said Michael, his voice suddenly hard as a diamond spear. The next person you speak to could be me, could be yourself. That's the person you'll spend the rest of your life with. You got me? When you open your mouth and words come out, that's the one. For an instant, Alan started to speak, but his co-worker raised a warning finger to his lips and shook his head once, twice, and Alan clamped his mouth shut. Go home. Michael said, not unkindly, take the day off, and don't talk until you mean it. Alan slung home. He turned off his cell phone and unplugged his landline. What if some telemarketer called? There he'd be, talking to that distant, invisible stranger, yet somehow faded... (laughs) No, it was too ridiculous. He plugged the phone back in. He had half a mind to call Michael, to really let him have it, but how could he risk spending the rest of his life with Michael? Twenty minutes later, when the phone did ring, he pulled the jack so hard that it yanked the plug off the wall. Alan remained holed up in his apartment for the endless, dawdling day. But by 8 p.m., with his stomach growling to beat the band, he gave in to the vagaries of a stubbornly empty refrigerator and ventured out to Kroger, where he'd swore he'd say nothing to anyone. Just grapefruit juice and yogurt, beer and two frozen lasagnas, then home. Instead, he found Margaret and the nagging clarity of happily ever after. Despite or because of Michael Wish, suddenly all was right with the world. Each and every day, Alan woke to Margaret. Every night, she fell asleep by his side. Margaret, beautiful Margaret, whose eyes carried a brittle gleam that was almost but not quite toughness. Margaret, who held up her chin in that faintly insolent manner, as if daring creation to hurt her. Of course, she had her share of little ways and habits. She expected to be consulted on pretty much every move Alan made even if it was a quick run to Johnny's for another six-pack. She slept in late whenever possible, a skill Alan had never managed to cultivate, and demanded quiet when doing so. She gradually threw out most of Alan's non-work wardrobe and replaced it with clothes she deemed more in keeping with her gray-eyed handsome man. In public, she was jealous and territorial. Other women were not permitted within five feet of Alan. Ten, if possible. In private, she couldn't remember to cap a tube of toothpaste to save her life. But had Alan been asked to summarize his wife, he would have employed words like generous, devoted, hot, kind, playful, dedicated, and impulsive. She was better educated than he, but she always tried to be reassuring. Don't worry, she said after one particular movie rental had driven him to fits of distracted boredom. I can watch Bergman by myself if you like. Her Purdue MBA had landed her in the development branch of Century National Bank, and her salary tripled Alan's. They moved into a three-story Victorian fixer-upper, and Margaret spent her weekends prying off damaged baseboards while Alan painted. He discovered he liked painting. The plastic scent of latex, the way the broad strokes of instant color immediately hid defects. And so they hammered and sanded and slowly transformed their derelict dump into the sort of regal home he'd always assumed the letterbox would be the closest he'd ever get to being inside. Parties, or soirees for close friends, were a habit with Margaret, and their new home allowed her to indulge. At least twice a month, she opened their home to her many acquaintances, and then the talk ran high and the liquor sloshed into glasses. Alan stubbornly stuck to beer and yearned for those moments when someone would mention baseball or hockey, but mostly he found himself in the company of peers demonstrably more glib than himself, and he spends those evenings certain that at any moment, Margaret's chatty, clever guests would unmask him as some Neolithic imposter. In the worst moments, someone would ask what he planned to do with his life once he grew up and stopped hauling letters for the government, but always, out of nowhere, Margaret would glide to the rescue. Alan has plenty of ambition, she'd say, her voice like cool water. He takes good care of me, and that's a job enough for any man. Right, honey? She'd kiss him quickly on the ear, and the harpies and naysayers would all sidle home. 
would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Home, leaving him to carry his Irish beauty up to bed, where they could both be ambitious as they pleased. As for Michael Wish, he attended the wedding and then, a few weeks later, announced he was giving up postal work. Time I left, and moved away. He left no forwarding address and had, so far as anyone else in Colony Square knew, completely disappeared. His last words to Alan came with a friendly smile and a squeeze to the shoulder. Enjoy, man. And Alan, seriously... Try to forget I ever existed. But six years into his otherwise phenomenal marriage, Alan had utterly failed to wipe Michael from his memory banks. The man's powers of prediction had the unsettling habit of sneaking up at the most unwanted moments. In bed with Margaret, for example, would this be the time she finally got pregnant? And would her parents ever come around to thinking he was a good match for their oh-so-deserving daughter? What about investments? In an era where every mutual fund they'd opened crashed and burned, was there still money to be made? Michael would know. Michael could tell him. Michael could tell him everything. At first he'd relegated Michael's thoughts to the status of background noise, an indulgence for mowing the lawn or soaping up in the shower. But mail delivery work came ready-made for daydreaming, and his worries laid siege. Were he and Margaret fated to never have a child? Neither uterus nor sperm showed any obvious sign of fault. What, then, was holding them back? For some, Faith might have held the dam of paranoia in check, but Alan had been brought up outside the church, and Margaret's reproach to religion was that of a guest confronted by a large and appetizing buffet, a sample here, a taste there, a Lutheran service one month, Baptist the next, and nothing to speak of in between. Alan was perfectly ready to concede that Christ might, well, be both the way and the door, but Michael... Michael Wish had answers. How could the Bible and steeple compete? Alan knew he had to tell Margaret, confide in her, tell her about Michael. He had to. Absolutely had to. But he didn't. The days stumbled past and Margaret fretted and drifted into long and longer silences. A muffled shroud enveloped the house, slowly extinguishing the little daily joys that for the first years had knit them so closely together. 
When Century National sent Margaret on a long weekend of corporate training in Cleveland, Allen made his move. The first thing Friday, he got hold of a Pittsburgh phone book, found the only Wish listed under pediatrics, and made a call. Dr. Clement Wish was only too happy to hear from a long-lost friend of his son, and Michael's current whereabouts cost only a cheerful tone and a handful of muddled white lies. With Margaret's departure only hours old, Alan fired up his 66 Mustang, one of the many benefits of Margaret's salary, and sped out of town southbound for the tiny college town of Rio Grande, where Dr. Wish informed him that he would find Michael, Dr. Wish the Younger, living quietly on his own, teaching courses on probability and statistics. Once on Route 35, Alan stopped for gas, and he asked the checkout girl, mostly for the sake of conversation, if he was on the right road to Rio Grande. The girl, bony and plain as a popsicle stick, cracked her gum at him. Not Rio, she said. Round here we say Rio, you know, to rhyme with Ohio. The town itself was dinky. The college a series of preformed college blocks, faceless and vaguely threatening, like plaything bricks scattered by some unseen giant. Under a dreary three o'clock sky, Alan parked, picked a block at random, and entered. It turned out to be the Arts and Humanities building, but the staff there cheerfully directed him two buildings over to the science division. Professor Wish? He's... Jane? Dr. Wish, he's downstairs, right? Eh, you go on over, you can't miss it. The directory in the hall confirmed that Dr. Wish had been relegated to the basement, and after shouldering past a gaggle of Friday-minded students, Alan trotted down the echoing stairs into the dim bowels of the science building. His heart was pounding. He caught a musky whiff of his suddenly damp armpits and his nose wrinkled. Which way? Right? No, left. Room 52, room 50, room 48. There, 42. The only door still open, as if in rebellious denial of the impending weekend. A beam of orange-yellow light splayed from the entrance, out across the hallway's molasses-colored tiles. The voice of Michael Wish, sounding gloomy and entombed, came from somewhere past the doorway. Alan, it's about time you got here. Alan stepped forward, lips pursed, eyes momentarily closed, a wing, a prayer, a way, a door. He rounded the corner and entered Michael's office. It was very neat. Not at all academic. No slovenly, absent-minded professor here, just Michael Sands Ponytail, sitting behind a desk so compulsively cleared that it held only a black paper-clip tray, a somewhat grimy telephone, and that all-too-familiar pair of dice. Overhead, the fluorescence flickered slightly, as if unsure about the value of lighting this particular room. Michael gently scooped the dice into the desk's center drawer, then leaned back, rested his elbows on his armrests, and pressed his fingers together, the index tips just touching. He wore a pale blue button-down, not, Alan thought, all that different from a postal uniform. I know what you're thinking, Michael said, and you're right. You could still turn around, head back to your wonderful wife, your fabulous home. Trust me, you should. He sounded classier, more cultivated. Was that what graduate school did to people? Alan felt the heat rising in his cheeks, in his scalp. His shoulders rose, his spine stiffened. I'll relax, Michael said, shifting back in his chair, hands behind his head. Let's just get this over with. Alan waggled a finger at Michael. Are you really going to make me ask? Michael sighed. You want to know about your babies, your precious babies? That's right, I do. Alan, I don't know how to tell you this, but the future, the past, time in general, it's fluid, unfixed. I'm not God, and I don't know for certain what will happen with you and Margaret and kids. You knew I was coming. You knew I'd meet Margaret. You knew I'd marry her. This time Michael shook his head. Let's look at those one at a time. I knew you were coming because when you pulled into the parking lot, I was in a colleague's office upstairs in the psych department, and I saw you. As for Margaret, I never said you'd meet her. I simply outfitted you with a particular set of expectations. You did the rest. The grin on Alan's face felt foolish, artificial, but he wasn't about to give up the press. So Lapless is just bullshit. Michael rubbed his face with both hands. Alan, I owe you an apology. Oh, really? I was doing a lot of drugs back then. Very stupid stuff. And I'd always sworn... Look, my rule was, I'd never mess around with serious predictions for real people. 
and up till I met you, I didn't. And after you, I never did again. Alan frowned. Is that supposed to make me feel better? That I was your one and only guinea pig? I know how you must feel. I can see how that must sound. Alan exploded. You know how I feel? You want to know how I goddamn feel? I wake up every morning feeling like I've been cheated. That my whole life is some kind of card trick. That I went and got married to a woman who wouldn't have given me the time of day if it hadn't been for your fucked up predictions. Oh, give yourself some credit. I never told her fortune. I never ordered her to fall for you. Heedless of the pulse of blood crashing in his ears, Alan slammed his fist on Michael's desk. Michael, he snarled, think about it. You've given me a very special kind of hell, and I live it every day, every second. Michael, almost imperceptibly, began pushing his chair back and away. I think, he said, that it's about time you left my office. Am I going to have children with Margaret? If you don't leave, I'm going to call security. Oh, I love it. So you already know you're going to call security. That's not what I meant. No, you're right, it isn't. Alan's fingers darted out and unplugged the phone jack. See? He held up the mute receiver in triumph. You're fallible after all. That Michael was nodding in complete agreement didn't register. Alan put the phone down. Michael, he said, are you going to answer my question? No. You mean, no, not right now? Or no, I have foreseen that I never will. You little jackass. You want what really happened? Fine. When we met, sorting mail? That was a break from grad school. Statistics, yes, probability curves. But I was halfway through my thesis, I was bored stiff, and I needed some kind of inspiration. Turns out what I needed was a live, unsuspecting subject. And there you were. A walking tabula rasa, just going with the flow. I put on an accent that you wouldn't run from, I made a couple of predictions, and bam! You fell for everything I said. Hook, line, and sinker. There. Is that what you came to hear? Alan let his cur fingers curl and clamp into fists, ready to strike. So, he hissed, now you claim you're a fake. One hundred percent. Liar. What about the banana? That stupid, rotten banana. Michael threw back his head and belted a laugh. <laughs> the banana? Christ, Alan. Don't you know a lucky guess when you hear one? With lethal deliberation, Alan shoved the door shut. As the latch clicked, he fixed Michael with the most dangerous stare he could summon and said, Tell me. Tell me everything that's going to happen to me from now until I die. Every detail. If I think you're telling the truth, you might live to leave this office. From his chair, Michael's eyes grew small and piggy. Fine, he sneered. You win. But you'd better take notes. I've got a lot to say. The drive back to Zanesville went as planned and very much as expected. To a T, thought Alan. Yes, he'd pulled off at that Route 35 gas station to get a pack of beef jerky for the driving, and yes, he'd ogled the new cashier's curvy body, somewhat hidden by an artfully ripped Metallica t-shirt, more or less exactly as Alan had said he would, except that Alan said the cashier would be a man, from India. Later, on I-77, he'd weaved enough to draw attention to a state trooper and wound up with a $200 ticket for arguing the point. Michael had said this might happen, too, which made it all the simpler not to even bother resisting the urge to yell in the cop's impassive, jut-jawed face. Of course, Michael hadn't filled in every corner of the vast moment-to-moment -moment tapestry of Ellen's life, but he'd done a pretty thorough job, from Alan's preparations to mow the grass cut short by a sudden squall of lashing wind and thunder, to his frozen lasagna and three-beard dinner Michael had him nailed, and Alan had the notes, ten handwritten pages to prove it. Hastily scrawled, barely legible, he'd left out a lot in his race to keep up with Michael's rambling spew of information. Most of it was banal. Alan would watch a pirate's game on Sunday afternoon with a rolling rock and the announcers for company, but toward the end, on about page seven, that was where things got interesting. That was the part where Margaret returned home. 
Return she did, within 20 minutes of Michael's 6.17 p.m. prediction. Alan met her on the stoop, his body blocking the door, his wrists resting high on the frame, the last of the six green rolling rock bottles dangling from his fingers like some unloved trophy. Hi, honey, he said, wondering if his speech sounded as slurred as it felt. Want to make a baby? Margaret halted, her wheeled black suitcase trailing behind her and threads of red hair drifting across one cheek. Well, she said, her chin raised a notch higher than usual. It's nice to see you, too. I'm serious. She giggled nervously and looked both ways to see that no one else was looking. I just got home. So? Alan, can we at least go inside? Relenting, Alan gave up his post in the door frame and flowed back into the entry hall. My thoughts exactly, he said, announcing it to the house at large. This round of baby-making is scheduled for the couch. Margaret lugged her suitcase in, closed the door with one foot, and stood, hands on hips, surveying her husband. You're drunk, she said at last, making to walk past him to the stairs. Hey, whoa, where are you going? Upstairs? We got a date. A hot date. She pushed him in the chest and knocked past him. Not like this. Not like this. Now I've had a long day, so let's just... He grabbed her arm, harder than he meant to, and she spun around, crashing up against him. His suddenly dry mouth was inches from her startled face. Baby making, he said, his voice sluggish with the effort of clarity. On the couch. Now. Alan, let go! But he would not. Alcohol had him, which by itself would never have prompted him to such aggression. To dragging Margaret's struggling, kicking form across the ancient dark floorboards into the exquisitely formal living room, where the Victorian couch, bloody maroon, waited like an executioner. No six-pack in Alan's life had ever made him violent or even forceful. But with the crushing weight of prophecy added to the mix, it was just too much. Michael had ordained that it would be this night, now, immediately after Margaret's homecoming. He'd named the living room. He'd specified the couch. He'd said Margaret would be beneath, he on top. He even warned she might cry. And she did, noisily, when she gave up fighting him off. And then she merely lay beneath him, jerking in time to his thrusts and quivering with sobs. When he was done, he stood, shorts tangled around his ankles, and surveyed the scene through tired, bleary eyes. There lay Margaret, his beautiful, astonishing wife, cheeks blotched scarlet against the pale field of her skin. Don't cry, he said. This time it's 100% guaranteed. Only at dawn did he stagger to the bedroom. He'd fallen asleep in his recliner, facing the yammering television, and called out for his wife. He searched, of course, but there was no note to find. When he called her mother's, he got no answer. What the hell? Michael hadn't said anything about this. Not a word. It struck him that Michael hadn't said anything about Margaret putting up a fight, either. He called Keisha at work, told her he was sick. She said not to worry, take things easy. The mail, somehow, would get through. He'd hardly hung up on Keisha before he was scrolling through the handset's phone listings, trying one after another of Margaret's girlfriends to no avail. They didn't answer, or if they did, they sensed the edge of panic in his voice and shied away from real answers. Alan, said one, I don't know what you did, but even if I knew where she was, I sure as hell wouldn't tell you. Next, exhausted, he called Rio Grande's switchboard and asked, voice quavering, to be connected to the office of Professor Michael Wish. One moment, said the operator, and Alan heard click, click, and then a ring. A second ring. He tensed. What would he say? A mid-ring tone shift signaled that an answering machine had taken over. Alan braced himself for a typically impersonal message, but instead, there was Michael, addressing him directly. "'Good morning, Alan,' came the voice, warm and strong, but sad, too, as if the act of leaving the message had cost the speaker dearly. "'I just want you to know that if you did what I think you did to your wife, well, I'm not sure when I'll forgive myself for that. But get this straight,' and here Michael's voice rose, tightened. "'This is your fault.' Not mine. I don't like being pushed. But okay, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll consult my magic eight ball. Hang on, let's ask it something. How about, will Margaret come back, ever? Wait, the murk is clearing. I see an answer. 
outlook not so good. Huh. Sorry, Alan. Like the kids today say, sucks to be you. Bye. The message ended. Alan hurled the telephone through the kitchen window. The cheerful sun and fine weather were unrelenting on the drive down I-77, but Alan scarcely saw it. His hands gripped the wheel white-knuckled, and he leaned over the steering column as if the Mustang were hauling him, of its own volition, down the highway. He made no move to slow at the Route 35 gas station for a fresh look at Popsicle Girl or Metallica Woman or whoever was working the register. All thoughts lay ahead, targeted on the dim, brown-tiled basement of the science building. All thoughts had latched, prison-like, onto the face of Michael Wish, the face of Michael, with Alan's hands encircling his throat. Of course, Michael was still bigger and probably stronger than Alan, despite Alan's on-again, off-again weightlifting routines. Alan knew this, so he'd brought along an equalizer, a massive 10-inch carving knife, and it lay beside him on the passenger seat like some shiny ice-age tooth. One good slash, thought Alan as he sped into the science building's crowded parking lot. One good cross-cut to the belly. That'll show him. Once Alan was out of the Mustang... The milling students cleared from his path as if Alan was a snowplow. There were shrieks, little gasps. Someone actually said the words, He's got a knife! In the distance, a siren wailed. Alan hauled open the building's doors and hurried down the stairs. This time, many office doors stood open, including Michael's, and muted cries of concern and panic dogged Alan's heels, one office after another, as Alan paced his way toward number 42. Michael! He roared, swinging in around the corner. You are a dead man! But the office was empty, with no sign there had been even a moment's activity since Alan had last seen it, with one mighty exception. Resting on the desk, exactly in the middle, was a shiny magic eight ball. Underneath, pinned by the ball's flat base, lay a post-it note, blinding yellow. He snatched it clear and read. Alan, two things. First, I know you'll never believe me, but I am and always was a fake. Second, because there's an outside chance that my first statement above is a lie, then you ought to realize that I'm not the kind of man you can sneak up on. The fury that had simmered all day in the base of his gut had nearly drowned out the growing commotion in the hall outside. But at last he registered it, and he turned, dropping the note, his knife brandished like a machete. You! In the office! came a voice, commanding and stern. This is the police. Come out of there, come out slow, and let me see your hands. Oh, I'll let you see my hands, Alan thought. Right hand first. But somewhere deep within himself, even as he hollered a banshee's war cry and hurtled through the doorway, knife raised, he had the presence of mind to recognize the moment for what it was, and to whisper the world a regretful goodbye. When the investigators sifted the contents of Alan's abandoned Mustang, they took special note of a lined legal pad, scrawled with what forensic analysts later described as a psychotic hand. There was, however, a distinct blow-by-blow -blow chronology for the first seven pages or so, up to a pair of words in blocky caps, Make Baby. After that, the schedule began jumping ahead, charting a long and happy life, but a misty one, lacking in concrete detail. The final lines were, I go sooner than I'd like, much sooner, but quick. I know it's coming. Lucky number, eight. Lucky color, bright yellow, also black and white. Lucky names, Butch, or Sundance. Eight and a half months later, Margaret Duquesne Malloy held a baby shower, an event that turned out to be a hoot for all involved, even the kicking, wakeful guest of honor, until it came time to unwrap the very last gift, a smallish package from an anonymous admirer. Inside lay a smart little primer on chaos theory, together with an oversized pair of grubby, six-sided dice. The attendant card read, Sorry about your dad. Maybe these will help. Call it a survival kit. Kisses and love. D. Lapless. The end. That was Mark Rigney's The Demon Laplace, as read by Logan Waterman. Logan has a degree in technical theater from California State University and has worked in many theaters, large and small, professional and amateur. He has also worked for Apple Computers, sold hot tubs and comic books, and prepared court documents. 
He has taught sword fighting for the stage and run lights for a local band. Until they broke up. He currently works tangentially for the legal system, watches a lot of science fiction television, listens to a lot of podcasts, and reads a lot of science fiction novels and comic books. He hopes to make a bit of money from voice acting and narration someday. Logan currently lives in Northern California with Grendel, a huge black beast whose primary occupations are sleeping and stocking the fish in the aquarium, and Morgana, a small fluffy queen who rules her domain with an iron paw. The fish remain unimpressed. Thank you, Logan. And that will be our show for the week, Children of the Night. Join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 